History Lecture 11, Rabbi Bleiweiss, we are um, just rounding out the period, the book of Yoshua and the period of uh, Yoshua. Um, they've given it, they've given up the land, now the nation is there, each with their respective um, nachalos, their allocations. Um, remember, it's n- it was never completed, so that we have Eretz Yisrael, sort of, kind of, mostly, but not entirely, and there are all these pesky Canaanites who remain as we said, and they're going to cause problems for us, and they continue to cause problems for us if the present population, the non-Jewish population in Israel, has any connection with those ancient Canaanites, and they may. The Medrash says, as high a loft, as lofty a level as we were back in these great days, um, there was a problem, and they, they fault Klai Yisrael. Remember, they pick on Klai Yisrael. Every little mistake is amplified, because when you're on a high level, Hashem expects more from you. So for us, these probably wouldn't even be sins, but for them, where they were holding, it was seen as a sin. So here the Medrash points out, when they each got their property, and you, me- you remember how it worked, Alpia Goral was miraculous. Every tribe, relative to the de- demographics, they got the amount of land that they needed relative to the number of people. Yeah, And then each tribe then subdivided and gave out by families and subfamilies and so on. So now you were left at the end of the day with, here is my land. And here's my agriculture. And can you imagine how exciting it must have been when you first went out and you had your first wheat harvest and you tied your red string for which, which mitzvah? Before then. You tied the red string, and here's the hint, in the corner of the field. Peah. The field of Peah. And then the poor people came, and that was theirs. And then you gathered the grains, and you let the leket, that's the, 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 the one or two, uh, they, they dropped, one or two um, uh, sheaves dropped. And then some you forgot, that's called the shichacha, and then, right? And leket, shichacha, peya, and then you were mafris, chumos, and maestros. You're doing the mitzvahs, it's so exciting. Who here, by the way, has taken leket, shichacha, and peya in your field in Eretz Yisrael? Oh. It's only relevant in Eretz Yisrael, and you can do it. Um, there is a, you think more often than it is, most of us are into high tech, you know, very few farmers these days. Uh, who are Jewish, and uh, even those who are don't always aren't always so from. Um, so it's a rare thing. There is I, I am on, who's on the tour with me uh, with Rabbi Torin and, and and me. We went around and I walked. We were walking by the mirror, and I suddenly was struck. There was a tangent that I went into. Like these people over here, there's a, a wonderful small group of Talmudic Chachamim and Sadikim who have the Chevra the Mitzvos Nadiros. They have a whole society that enables, facilitates people keeping these less commonly kept mitzvahs. So you have to pay a little bit of money, it's not a lot of money, and you go out, and for example, we went out and we, we co-owned a field uh, out near Shalavim, and we went and we tied a red string, and there were actually poor people who went and took wheat. It was thrilling. Right? And then you let the shlek and the shichra go, and then you take it and you go through all. If you've studied the Lamentes Malachos on Shabbos, the 39 categories of Malachos on Shabbos, so you know there's, there, there's a whole series that have to do with baking bread from the, from the initial sowing and harvesting of the land all the way to the baking of the bread and everything in between. So we did, we did all the things, the winnowing, you let the, the, the sifting and everything else. Uh, we took chumos and maestros, and then we had. Tumas and is with a bracha because it's vaday tevel. It certainly requires that tithing. Um, and then I was so excited. The year happened to be a meiser ani year. The third and sixth year of the shemitah cycle is a, it's called the meiser ani year. So you take the meiser ani uh, tithings and you give it to poor people. And I went to I think it was Meisharim, and I had my little baggie of wheat kernels. I was so proud. And I found 
I guess I was a little naive at the time, and I found a, a, a genuine certified poor person, and I went over and I said, here, and he sort of um, looked at the little baggie and looked at me and looked at the baggie and looked at me, and what? What do you want me to do with this, you know? And I realized, maybe he won't take this so well, and I said, um, and here's some money tips, right? I gave him some money. And that was, the money was much more appreciated. But I said, yeah, that's holy wheat, I'll have you know. And then we took the rest of the wheat. My wife made a beautiful cholent with it that week. And the cholent tasted extra special because of all the mitzvahs that went into the cholent. Yeah? You can also buy a piece of land, so it might be buy a piece of land. Absolutely, if you buy a piece of land. A few more exciting things in life than to buy, have your own karka, your own piece of plot of land in Eretz Israel. Can you imagine how many mitzvahs you could do? Anyway, that's, the, that's, the, that's uh, all a long way of saying that the Medrash tells us when they each got their plot of land, it was a little bit too dear to them. They started tending their own crops and taking care of it, and it was very much L'Shem Shemaim, but each family became more consumed with cultivating its own portion and less concerned with the other guy and with the nation as a whole. And we're going to see this as a pattern, and it's something that we got to be careful with. We are, I mean, today, Bichlau, forget about it. Today, we're such a narcissistic generation, narcissists, right, individually focused and so on. The whole notion of collective responsibility is not something that comes naturally to us. Back in the day, they were collectively oriented. Remember, we're right uh, on the heels of the, whole, of the whole episode with Achan, where the Jews suffered collective punishment, and nobody questioned it. Nobody had an issue saying, hey, how come you're punishing me? It's not my fault. Achan was the one who sinned. No, no. If he blew it, it's my responsibility. And yet, relative to that lofty level, the Jews should have been a little bit more other-directed. We know that certainly the Torah forces us and demands of us that we rise above ourselves and care about us, that we're, as we say, no im we should carry one another's yoke. When you're, you have distress, really... The way I should be is I should feel, that's my distress. It's your, your problem is my problem. When you conversely experience some kind of simcha, you have uh, somebody gets married or you have a bar mitzvah in the family, somebody has a, you have a niece or nephew that's suddenly born, I should have a genuine simcha, that's mine. That's the level that we should be on. And we already see a crack in the, uh, you know, in, in the, in the sur- on the surface of the Jews being a little too focused on themselves. At the end of the Sefer, Yoshua addresses the nation he admonishes them. He says all the right things that we all know. And, you know, you wonder sometimes that sometimes the correct Musr is repeated to the point that we think we know it. So we tune it out. But really, we should have been listening exactly then. And he dies at the, um, well, it's semi-old age of 110. Back in the day, uh, sometimes the Tzadikim lived even, even uh, longer. Um, who else lives 110 years? He, I'll give you a hint, it was, his, it was his ancestor, and his ancestor, not many generations back, um, was actually the first of his family to die uh, relatively young. Uh, before him, you're really close, Yosef. Yosef also lived 110 years. I told you that last summer, one of my most thrilling tours that I, I led was a tour to Kever Yoshua bin Nun himself, um, and then followed by a, a trip uh, just a little bit north of there is Kever Yosef in the heart of Shechem. We actually went to both of these tzaddikim, both of whom lived 110 years. Uh, he died in actually two different verses in two different places. That one says it's Timnas Serach, the other one says it's Charis. It may be both. Today, there's a there's a grave that's in a hostile air village that's hard for Jews to village. Some uh, the the year after Yeshua, Elazar Hakohen, the son of Aaron, also dies. So it's really the changing of the guard. The uh, 
they are already into counting the Shemitah years and the Yovel years in this stage. Remember, Yoshua was there for the first counted Shemitah year. We're uh, just a week away from the next Shemitah year, um, a little over a week away. And uh, the Jews are now on their own, as it were. And the next phase in history is about to begin, usually referred to as the period of the Shoftim. And that's the book of Shoftim. The book, um, the book is written by, according to the Gemara Baba Basra, identifies all the authors of the different books of the Bible. Shmuel and Navi. Shmuel is the author of Shoftim. He's, the, he's considered the last of the judges. Think about this period. You have a bunch of different judges hailing from different tribes. Each one um, worked beautifully in a way that never had, first of all, there's never been a time in history that the Jews have ever had this kind of arrangement where you have a, almost a rotation, a rotation of different judges, all accepted that you don't see anybody vying for power with one exception, I should say. There's one bad, there's one bad nut in the whole scheme of judges. You know who it is? Caleb's son? No. It's, uh, who was the son of the... Gidon, Gidon's, Gidon's son. We'll get to him. Um, but other than that, the Jews take to them, They're, they are, it's reflecting this exalted level of, of the Jews. Um, excuse me, there we go. Um, <clears throat> there are, for the record, most of the rest of Tanakh is about sin. Remember that we were only supposed to have the five books of Moses and then Yoshua, but we went downhill, and so you need it. Really, you're supposed to read Tanakh. Who's really learned Tanakh here? You've learned some Tanakh. Has anybody learned some Tanakh? Uh, if you have, I appreciate your contributions as we, as we pull our resources here. So you see that most of the books of the Tanakh are a record of, of, of sins, of mistakes that Jews make. And we're supposed to learn from those sins. That's the way, certainly that's what we're going to be focusing on now for the next few weeks. How do we blow it? In Shoftim, there definitely are uh, some really shocking episodes. But... We are supposed to recognize them, I'm quoting Rabbi Victor Miller again, as the few isolated instances in an otherwise really amazing period, there were a few bad times, especially, anybody know, you know the Sefer Shelf team? What's the worst of the worst story? It's referred to as the story that's called the Pilegish Migiva, the concubine from Giva. Giva, by the way, is walking distance from here. Oh, no, Biblical Giva. It's walking distance, but I don't encourage you to walk no. there because it's the middle of an Arab area, just north of here. Up, she gets caught up into my Only 12 pieces. But, but, but is that actually the worst of the stories? Is, uh, the well, it's, it's referred to as the Pilegish because one uh, horrific story begets a yet even more horrific story. It's like a, it's like a snowball that, that is all part of the yeah, same you, you series were, uh, of episodes. Micah, it's all part of the same uh, thing. I'm including it as one package because it seems to all overlap. But these stood out in a period where otherwise the people are very strong. One of the recurring themes, psukim, that runs through Shoftim is the pasuk, a very famous pasuk, Ish Hayashar Be'enav Ya'aseh. Every man did that which was straight and clear in his own eyes, which actually is usually a negative thing. It's a bad thing, because that means like, you know, you do your thing, I do my thing, which is not the Jewish way. But here's what Vidur Miller is explaining, and he said, in the times of the Shoftim, it was actually really good. It showed we didn't need a king or any central government. Like most societies, all societies in the world only function with one central government. In the days of the Shoftim, it's a very, very unusual rule. 
in which everybody was striving for Yashrus. What's Yashrus? What's Yashrus? Yosher. It's in our name, Yisrael. Yasharkel, we go straight to Akadosh Baruch Hu, or Yeshurun, we go straight, Yashar Nun, straight to Nun, which is 50, which is Matan Torah, at the end of 50. Yashar, Yashrus, straight, honest. Uh, no frills, no nonsense, no mind trips, head trips, none of that stuff, just trying to do the right thing. He says it characterizes the nation that they were really striving. Listen, we're human beings. Even people who are striving sometimes blow it. And we find, and we're going to see some of the mistakes that they made, but not that they were hefker, not that they were without any rulership. In fact, the book is on such a high level, the Gemara in Avodah refers to the book as Sefer Hayashar. It's the book of straightness. If you want to know how to lead a good straight life, you know what a straight life is? When you're traveling on a road and it's a straight road, it's very hard to get lost. You can always just double back. The minute that things start to twist and turn in life, that's when you run the risk of, as we say, going off the derech, losing it, losing perspective. So Yashus is a, is a major value, and, and, and this time really describes it. Go ahead. But it's mentioned uh, three times, that, that line about uh, how everybody does their own... Uh, so he's reading it positively. Mentioned. Often it's read, it's true. But, uh, but all three times it's mentioned, they, they focus on that, the negative. Yeah, the negative. The negative. That there was no king so in the land. The way he then, reads it, his reading is persuasive. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm persuaded by his reading. He's saying that <laughs> it's even though the times had problems still remember how lofty they were that's what he's that's what he's suggesting and I think it makes sense um, later on in the book of Shmuel which is the next book of the Tanakh they ask for a king and Shmuel resists he is not interested in the king and one of the reasons that he's not interested in giving the king is he's saying what's wrong with the present system I'm a Shofet but more to the point all of my predecessors they were all Shoftim and it all works so beautifully. Why do you want a king? And why do they want a king? What do, they, what do the people answer? It should be like everybody else. They want to walk in the ways of the nations. They want to, they want to do that. He says, you know, oh, okay. And Hashem allows it. You, you can have a king, uh, but be careful what you ask and what you want, what you look for in life. You might just get it. Uh, you know, sometimes that worked very well for us, but not always. And you put a curse out, too. You explained all the bad things. Yeah, he warned them. He don't say you weren't warned, he says. Um, they, Bnei Israel will succeed though before we have a king we go without a monarchy or even a central government for about 393 years this, this first phase in Eretz Israel um, and I have a few things to say about it and as I, as, as I said I'm, I do rampage through history we're not doing absolutely everything and I'm trying to give you some of the highlights but if you have other things that you think I'm skipping by all means bring them up um, in the Pesukim occasionally we find that the Jews turn to idolatry but there's idolatry and there's idolatry. There's the grade A, no, uh, no, no, uh, yeah, what is it, no old bar, uh, you know, out and out idolatry. At this point, we're not, we haven't descended so low. That, that's coming, but not yet. Here, this is from Revuven Margolios, he says, when they fell into idolatry, it was isolated, it was the minority, and it was even then, it was almost offhandedly, and this is this is the way he this is a great description. It was they kept mitzvahs, they loved the Shem, they went to shul, they gave tzedakah, and they kept the getchka in the backyard. Getchka is the Yiddish word for, you know, like a thing out there, like a little Buddha or something in the backyard. Because that's what the Canaanites that they never bothered, they didn't completely kick out. They had a getchka in their backyard. You know, so it's kinda like I don't know. What's a getchka? 
a Yiddish word for a little, little thing, little idol, little statue, little something, little whatchamacallit. Right? They had a getchka in the backyard. Right? And somehow they lived with it in sync with their lives and didn't see it as somehow incongruent with, with leading a from life. It's, I mean, you know who this describes? We're supposed to take muster from this? Kind of like us. You know, I think most people are very sincere, very genuine, want to lead a good life, want to come close to Kaddish Baruch Hu. But then, like, you know, a guy comes to me last week, he said, I got this problem, I kind of feel a little two-faced because I'm coming to Sheer and I go to Davening and I love everything that I'm doing, but I have this whole porn stash still in my phone and I can't seem to get rid of it. And, you know, it feels a little incongruent. And I said, yeah, yeah a little bit. You know, they got the getchka in the backyard, or whatever the modern equivalent of the getchka is, right? So we, we sometimes fall into this lack of behavior, what, uh, lack lack of proper behavior. The um, you know what it means is that we're human, um, but we got these blind spots, and you know how that works psychologically. How do we do that? I know that, but I'm saying, how do you manage to somehow make it work and live with it? Say it again. Television. We get oh, tunnel vision. Television. Tunnel vision? Yeah, yeah, I was going to go there too. Um, I'm trying to add things on. Yeah, we add things on. You said the keyword too. We rationalize it. Oh, it's fine. Yeah. Everybody has a porn stash in their phone, don't they? Right? No, this is like totally normal, no? Right? Except it's not. And somehow we, we make it work out because we can't live with ourselves otherwise. We say, eh, it's not that. It's not the worst. At least I don't do that and the other things. At least I'm not a, a you know, an axe, a triple axe murderer. You know, I'm a good guy. I don't murder people with, you know, I don't poison. I, I never poisoned anybody with cyanide. So it's fine. Right. Okay, so they had a getchka in the backyard. We're in the, we're in the period of the Shoftim. Okay. Um, Asher's, Asher's a, a proud alum. He survived all of Jewish history um, last year. The, um, we never got the t-shirts. We'll have to do that this year. The... Uh, or, or even better to, or even better to see it. What do you mean by tzitzit? What do you mean? I'm saying that I survived Jewish history. Oh yeah, I'm getting on the tzitzit. Yeah, somehow that feels weird on tzitzit. This is off now? Are you, is it too cold? It was too cold, so let's get some air at least. Eli, would you open the back window, get a little cross ventilation? No, no, I don't mind. No, no, just if the air conditioning's off, we should have some air. This, and now it's very pleasant anyway. Here's the pattern of Safer team. They would fall to sin. Again, the sin is relatively minor. Um, then Hashem would deliver them to their enemies. Why? Hashem never punishes to get us. He doesn't take delight in punishing us. He wants us to take muster, make tshuva. It's a little pacha on the hand. Get, go, get your act together. That's what a Kaddish Baruch is doing to us. And so there'd be a cycle. We would then fall to our enemy. We'd be miserable. We'd cry out, please Hashem, save us. Hashem would then save, and you see this repeatedly, right? This is the cycle of Shoftim. He sent a Shofet, a judge, who is combination Talmud Torah scholar, Talmud Chacham is a Torah scholar, plus usually warrior uh, and, and some kind of statesperson uh, to come forward and deliver the Jews by way, by, by through the miracles of Hashem, who saves them. And then it all goes well again, and then they start to sin, and then the whole cycle repeats itself. And that's the pattern of this time. The Navi, Shmuel, who's writing the book, is writing it for today. Whatever day you're living in it, all through history, he knows he's only including those choice morsels of history that he wants us to learn from so that we can become better people ourselves. Because if you notice, we fall into patterns too. 
and we do this, and then we mess up, and then we make tshuva, and it all goes well again, and then we fall into our old ways. It's fantastic musr. It's among the best musr you can get. You just have to know, you have to know how to learn Tanakh properly. And that it all comes to life. Um, again, most of them are pure and isolated from the Kananim. Uh, they, they never lose a battle after their defeat in Ha'ai. They're successful. There's a Gemara in Sukkah that says something very interesting. Rabbi Eliezer teaches us in the Gemara in Sukkah that each of the tribes produced a shofet, which is beautifully democratic. Everybody had their own represent, representative, and it reflects the general achdus, the unity of the times. Um, think about it. We have a world that's purely opportunistic. Everybody's jockeying for power. They're trying to, you know, every photo opportunity, every kissed baby. That's, that's the way we, we're used to our politicians getting their own way. Here, it works in a harmonious rotation system where it's as if each of the tribes is saying to one another, you first. No, no, you first. No, you first. Can you imagine such a world? Can you imagine such I mean, an Israeli Knesset, you ever, you ever follow? Israelis, secular Israelis especially, love politics. It's another kind of sports or, edu- or entertainment. Because the, what they do in the Knesset, it is uh, animal kingdom. I mean, sometimes. And, and some of the things that go on, the shenanigans that go on, and it's all fun, you know, if you can take an objective distance from it. Uh, <laughs> Crazy, crazy things. Anyway, as far removed from this period as possible, where everybody's saying, you go first, um, the qualification for who to be a shofit was Gadus and Torah. It was the purest kind of meritocracy. You realize that's the way our system works till today. Who becomes a gadol? Who's a Torah scholar? Aryeh, but in addition to Aryeh. Who becomes a Torah scholar? How does it work? So there was a secular Israeli politician who went, and I think it was Dayan Weiss, the Minchas Yitzchak, and he said, so, you know, how did you become Gadol Hador? And Dayan Weiss responded, I'm not Gadol Hador, I'm just Yitzchak. He said, you know what I mean, I mean you're like a Gadol, right? You have like an official job as Gadol, don't you? He said, no, I don't, they don't have a job, they don't draw a salary, they don't get benefits from it. Um, what qualifies them as a Gadol? Simple meritocracy. We ask Shailas, we have difficulty, right? So you, you ask a Shaila, you go to your Rebbe. Your Rebbe sometimes knows the answer, sometimes he doesn't know the answer. Often he's flummoxed, he doesn't know. What does he do? You go to Reb Lazarus. Reb Lazarus, I don't know. Can you, you know this, Shaila? Reb Lazarus knows a lot of Torah. Sometimes he knows, sometimes he doesn't know. Reb Lazarus then bumps it up to the next Rav, who bumps it up to the next Rav. And how do you know who a Gadol is? It's a pretty logical thing that emerges when we see that there are certain people who get the Shilas bumped up to them consistently. They, everybody knows they're the smartest ones on the block, as it were. They're the Gadolim, right? That's the system as we see it in the times of the Shof team. Um, there's a little bit of a problem with Rebbe statement that is a technical issue. I just bring this up. It's a, it's a small point, but... Rebbe Yezu says there's a shofet from every tribe. We can't account for all of them. And so if you're really trying to follow it through and see, it, Rashi points out that Reuven, God, and Asher, they may have had a shofet, but they're never mentioned. <coughs> so maybe there's team that are never mentioned. It's not clear. Both those three tribes. Shimon's also not mentioned, but maybe that makes more sense since we already saw Shimon is excluded. He's excluded from Moshe's bracha. They lost their, remember, they lost their portion of land. So Shimon is a question also. Um, why did Shimon lose everything, by the way? They had one member who was, as we say, a little bit uh, inauspicious. He died in the times of the Torah. Pinchas killed him. Zimri. Remember the prince Zimri with Cosby Batsur? So all Shimon's decline was due to Zimri's 
sin, according to the Medrash. Um, but wasn't it also, I mean, Shimon himself also sinned uh, in the time of Yosef? Uh, if that's counted as a sin, he did a Lashem Shemaim different, oh, different, different degree. Fair him. enough, fair enough. Shimon's also an amazing individual. And we'll come back in the end of days and has a role to play with Klal Yisrael. Briefly, here are the judges. Um, we got Osniel ben Knaz. We're going to meet all these people. He's from Yehuda. Ehud's from Binyamin. He's the longest judge. He's, he, he judges for 80 years. There's uh, less than one year Shamgar, who's from maybe from Naphtali. Wait, wait, wait. Who's the one that stabbed the yeah, yeah, that's Ehud. That's Ehud. Very good. Um, Devorah is the is the is the uh, female sh- uh, shofetis. Although Rashi seems to include Yael, who was also a separate shofetis, a judge. We must talk about the, the what does it mean to have women in a position of authority. Pinchas is considered a shofet. Gidon Avimelech was who you were thinking of. He's the one rotten egg, the one rotten rotten apple in the mix. There's a couple. There are few that are very. Uh, Obscure. We don't know nothing. We know virtually nothing about them. Tola and Yair, Yiftach is going to play a role. Ibtsan, Elon, each coming from different tribes that we have. Avdon, Shimshon, very famous. Shmuel and Eli is a, is a is a judge too. Three of them were also prophets. Just because you were shofar didn't mean you were a prophet. Who were the prophets? What Devorah was. Devorah was a right. She's a female prophet. Pinchas and Shmuel. Now, the, I mentioned this and we're going to talk about this today, there's a shocker, there's a wowser of a story that basically is the last, if you were to read the book from beginning to end, it's, the, it's from the 17th chapter till the very end, is the general collective story that's referred to as Pilegish Megivab, and it's got a lot of pieces. I'm going to summarize it. Is anybody... Yeah, are, is anybody pieces, uh, oh, yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> Pun intended, I guess. Uh, unintended. The... Um, <coughs> I mean, that's not the most shocking part of the story. No, no. It gets pretty grisly. Was it a gangrafer? Is that the most shocking part? No. Well, that's also not the most shocking part of the story. Well, look, fasten your seatbelts. Fasten your seatbelts. Now, this is the clear aberration uh, in an otherwise exalted time period, and the behavior of the nation was absolutely the shame shemaim. That's going to require. I have to defend that statement. It's not always clear how that's the case, but they really meant well. In everything they did, it's possible. One ex- one way of looking at it is it's 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 such an exception to the rule that it's as if the navi tucks it into the end of the book, as like a, a an afterthought, trying to say this was bad, but it really didn't characterize the time. Um, when did it take place? Is a machlokus. We simply don't know. According to the Seder Olam, it may be at the very beginning of the time of the Shoftim, which is why I tell the story now, because I'm trying to go semi-chronologically. So it might have been in the time of the first Shofet, Osniel's time. Barbanel says it was much later in the time of Shimshon, Samson the prophet. The Rift says it spanned the entire period, meaning they were events that were drawn out and took place concurrent with everything. Yeah. Um, Here's the basic. Here, here are the basic details that you should know. Again, what I'm giving you is not comprehensive, but it really, if you don't want to be a hopeless amharitz in your life, you should have a walking, uh, convert, you know, conversational familiarity with the events of our history that are recorded. Even though the Tanakh is not a history book per se, but it does give certain basic details. You should know there was a woman who came from the tribe of Ephraim. She's a minor player in this. Who has a son named Micha. And she tells him to make a structure out of silver that's intended as a tribute to Hashem. See, they were both uh, 
part of the exodus from Egypt, and in gratitude to Hashem, she felt that this was the appropriate thing to do. Of course, be careful with those statues, because they have a tendency to be used for the wrong thing. But the initial kernel of the idea, the purpose of the statue was as a tribute to Hashem. That was what is intended. She apparently is wealthy. She uses uh, 1,100 shekels for the, for, the, uh, for the occasion. It was Osir. Who's Micha, the Gemara in Sanhedrin says, maybe he was Sheva ben Bichri, who we're going to meet later on. Maybe he was Nevat, who's Yeravam's father. If these are all just names I'm throwing out to you, get used to it. I throw a lot of names out. They're going to start Wait, to make sense. Is Nevat Nevat Is that the same guy that like... No, it's not. No, but let's distinguish. Nevat is a not well-known figure. His son is, is very famous. You're going to have to know Yeravam ben Nevat. He's the one who basically uh, motivates the nation to split apart. And you've heard of the Ten Lost Tribes. Uh, he is the original catalyst for them <laughs> breaking away and having two kingdoms. That's Yeravim ben Navat. Navot, who you're thinking of, comes a few generations later. He's the one with the vineyard that Ahav desires. And he, yeah, that's Navot. Not, uh, the names sound familiar, different people. Um, one of the backstories of Micha, the Medrash tells us, is he was the child. Remember, they used to use, they, they ran out of mortar for the bricks back in Egypt, and so they started using children for the job. Bricks. Yeah, so Micha was the child that Moshe saved. They were about to use him in their desperation, they were about to use him as mortar between the bricks, and Moshe saved him, and he grew up again. He was grateful, but he was a little bit, how do we say this? He was a little bit off. You know, sometimes people are a little bit off. Something, something not quite functioning with all of his good intentions, are you? Wasn't he a really bad guy? That's the thing. He was mixed. One of the things that's, that's, that's important to know as we learn Tanakh is our, our most pristine tzaddikim have flaws that we're meant to learn from. And our worst Rishayim have virtues. Everybody, everybody emerges, ours, I'm talking about, you know, like in, in, the, in the scheme of things, everybody has something that we're meant to learn from. Ezu chacham halomid kol adam. A real, genuine, wise person learns from everybody, and that's what we're supposed to take a cue from as well. Micha's really not the worst of the worst at all. He makes a terrible mistake that the Jews are going to pay for uh, because of this, because they refuse to get rid of it, as you're about to see. But again, it starts with a simple well-intended mistake. Yes? Yeah, but he's also a thief, though. Hold on. Okay, so here's, here's, here are the basic events of Micha's life. Um, he is, listen to how Chazal relates to him. In the Gemara Sanhedrin, it says that he is one of those who's condemned as not having, uh, not deserving Olam Haba, but then they refer to him in, 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 in adulation. They say he's one of the greatest Machnis Orchim in history. He used to have lots of guests, and they love him for it. So what is he? He's mixed. You know, kind of like a lot of us. A lot of good, a lot of bad, all mixed in together. Um, in fact, the, um, he builds an idol. He builds this structure that becomes an idol that the Jews worship. And the angels are about to destroy it. And they spare him. And they spare Micha and his idol because of his kindness, the Gemara tells us. That's Micha. Meanwhile, there's a lot of meanwhiles. If anybody's drawing the comic version, you know Asher Burroughs who just got married? Asher, you haven't met Asher yet? You'll meet Asher. He's in the base of He's a Derek alumni. He just got married. Anyway, he took notes in this class. By, he's an immensely talented individual, and he drew everything. So if anybody here is a cartoon artist, meanwhile, how do they have it in the cartoon show? Meanwhile, right? Um, 600 soldiers from the tribe of Dan 
Dan is situated, their initial portion that they're allocated in the original giving out of land is actually down in the Beit Shemesh area. Who's been down to Beit Shemesh? Who's been to the traditional place called Kever Dan? Down there, there's a place people visit. You know, that's the tribe of Dan. Uh, not far from where I live in Telstone, but it's further down the road. <coughs> and what's called the Shvelat. Anyway, they feel that, that their land that they were allocated is not adequate to their growing numbers. They need more land. They set out to capture more land. They go north to the unprotected, peaceful city called Laish. On the way, they pass Micha's house. Micha's in Ephraim, so he's on the way north. I should have given you the maps. We'll do this better tomorrow. I'll try to get you the maps. They go, here's my imaginary map, you can follow me, right? So they're going, they're in Dan, which is over here in Beit Shemesh area, uh, southwest of Jerusalem. They travel up towards Ephraim. Dan is in the far north of the country. Right, so the, the, the other tribe of Don, there are two Dons. There's Don in the, in, in the Shvela, in the midsection, and there's Don in the north. They pass through Ephraim, and on the way, they pass Micha's house, and they take the pestle, they steal the pestle, they steal this, this, this object of worship, and Micha had installed a man to be the Kohen to serve. Isn't this weird? He was a Levi, and he made him the Kohen to serve the pestle, which seems to be something's off with all of this. They take the, that man, the Levi, to join them to minister to this idol. They get up to Laish in the north. It's a peaceful city. They burn it to the ground. They rename it Dan. And they, they, they appoint a new person to be the Kohen. And I mentioned him a few days ago. His name is he's identified in the verse. In this very twisted scenario, his name is Yehonasan Ben Gershom Ben Minashe. But there's a weird nun that's elevated in the air above the pasuk. And you remember why? I mentioned this a few days ago. It was Moshe's grandson. And the nun is elevated because it really doesn't belong there. But it's, the way we're supposed to read it is as if the pasuk, the, the, the navi who wrote the pasuk couldn't bring himself to identify this person who's now administering to an idol as being Moshe Rabbeinu's own grandson. As, we, as, as we're going to see in, uh, in Sefer Shmuel, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, and and um, hard to imagine, but we said then, and we'll say it again now, there's no guarantee with one's offspring. Um, and Yohonasan actually was, uh, he's the subject of lots of Midrashim himself. He was a mixed figure who meant well and blew it as well. Uh, it's a common theme. The idol is there and remains a fixture for whatever reason. It just becomes that getchk in the backyard uh, that people get used to and they don't dispose of it, and it becomes the collective sin of the Jews as every day that passes, that the Pesel Shalmicha, that's what it's called, it's called the Pesel Shalmicha, continues to exist, and it goes for hundreds of years. It's, it's a sin that lies collectively on the heads of the Jews. Um, and it's there, uh, it goes all the way until Shiloh is much, many years later, uh, 369 years later, is destroyed. All the following events, including the death of 72,000 Jews, civil war among the Jewish people, are all due to the failure of the Sanhedrin and then Pinchas is the Kohen Gadol to, to get rid of this Pesach. Um, meanwhile, yeah, the plot thickens. Another Levi is staying in Ephraim. He goes down to Beit Lechem, so he travels by way of the Yeshiva or Sameach. He goes from Ephraim, which is north of here, due south, which is behind me. Uh, goes down to Beit Lechem, which is in Yehuda. And he takes a pilegish, takes a concubine. 
concubine. What's the deal? What's a concubine? We don't know from such things. What's a concubine? It's a less of a wife. That's a good description. There is some minimal contract. You know, marriage is a big deal. Concubinage is a little bit de- little deal. It's a lesser wife. Why is such a thing allowed? So we know that back in these days, a man could take multiple wives, right? And we'll see when that changes. We could have multiple wives, and a concubine was seen as an okay thing, if not exactly desirable. Can we have concubines today? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there is, I think Rabbi Yaakov Emden had, had an unusual, exceptional opinion that yes, it's okay, uh, but everybody disagrees with him. And now, I, I don't know if anybody got, any, already got, got their hopes up here, I'm sorry, no concubines for you. Uh, doesn't work. Anyway, he takes a concubine um, from the city of Beit Lechem, and um, they're traveling north. They pass Yavus on the main watershed road. Didn't I talk about this? Do you know where the watershed road is? There is one central spine road. It's simply outside our door. This road was called Route 60 that everybody incorrectly calls Route 1. But this main road here is really Route 60 today. Um, follows the center of Eretz Israel is one major spine that goes up, and everybody travels that way. It's the way the Avos walked. It's the way all of the, everybody walked all of history, and it's right here. And they go by, and that way passes by the old city. Do you know Jerusalem at all? Yeah. Can you picture the old bus station, Derech Hebron, which is mostly the spine, the Derech Hebron down in Talpiot, right? It follows this what's called the watershed line. And it goes and it goes by way of anybody been to the Begin Museum, Menachem Begin Memorial Museum, Heritage Museum? You know what I'm talking about. I'll have to take you there. We have to, we have, I have to show you around. I have to show you the town. Anyway, there's a place where they pass Yavus. They make their way north. They go to a place called Giva. <laughs> Giva, I hope to pass also maybe on a tour this year. It's also walking distance, even though it's situated in the middle of an Arab, Arab city. It's right over Pisgat Ze'ev, close to a Jewish settlement. Um, and probably that's Giva. And they find that they need a place to stay. And the, place, the giva is not hospitable. And they find an old man who takes them in. It's in the tribe of Binyamin. And a bunch of bad guys, local youth, pound down the door. And they say, let us in. We want to get to uh, this man. Um, what does it sound like? There are a lot of stories in Tanakh. You're meant to draw a parallel. Anshay Stone. It sounds like, again, like an episode where the angels go to Lot. In, the men, in, in stone, and they pound on the door, give us the man to sodomize. That's where the term sodomy comes from. And um, like Lot, the old man tries to stall, and then he has, like Lot, he has a really odd suggestion. He said, take my daughter, she's a virgin, spare these men. Weird. You don't do that. Don't try this at home, kids. Uh, yeah? Ultimately, they reach a bargain. They send out the concubine. In Hebrew, again, you get the term they called pilegesh. They figure it's a good compromise, I guess. And they send this poor girl out. She's abused terribly by these, by these bad guys, by this gang of tough guys from Giva all night long. That's why the episode's called the pilegesh Migiva. In the morning, she falls by the old man's doorsteps. It's not clear whether she's dead yet, but if she's not dead yet, that's coming soon. When the man, the Levite, who took her as his concubine, opens the door, discovers her, he does, well, he does, I guess you can call it the logical thing under the circumstances. See, he takes her body and he cuts it into 12 pieces and then he sends uh, pieces to each of the 12 tribes of the Jews. 
It's true. So maybe there is a logic to it. We wouldn't necessarily think it the logical thing under the circumstances at the beginning, but that's what he does. He sends it to all the tribes as a way of galvanizing them and shocking them into action. Look at what's happening here in your people, Qal Yisrael. We can't let this cancer grow and wait, turn wait, worse. Why, why did they want to rip? Why did they rip this girl? They were wicked. They were wicked. What was the... They just came and they went to the rape. They, were, they, were, they actually were interested in the man first. And they reached. They broke her to compromise. They, they said, oh, well, take, well you know, keep the man, but you take the girl instead. Something was off. Something was twisted in these people. So they were just going north. They were bad guys. They were going north and they just decided to stop the rape someone? Again, the, I, I'm saying maybe too much too quickly. The Levite, his concubine, take refuge with his old man. Yeah. Meanwhile, a gang of young toughs, B'nei is the Hebrew expression. They go and they pound down his door, give us the man, we want to we wanna have our way with him. They broker a deal, they say, okay, take my daughter, they don't want the daughter, okay, take the concubine. Oh, but that's so ra- random, like, what was the, do they know this guy? He, so he was standing outside in the, in the town trying to find a place to stay. So, I mean, they... I think they call it basic um, basic misanthropy. A misanthrope, somebody who hates people, hates strangers, and a stranger comes to town, and that's their way. That's the, what we call anti-hospitality. They want, instead of taking him in, they want to kill him. A stranger comes to town, and they want to rape him. They want to rape the stranger. Again, a quality that one found in stone is already in Giva. The Levite wakes up, and again, he does something despicable. He, cuts, he either kills her or he cuts her body into 12 parts, sends it to the 12 tribes. His motivation, though, is to show, is to alarm the Jews into action and say, look what's becoming of your people. We're not that many uh, decades removed from our Sinai, and look what it's come to. We better act now, lest this develop into a cancer. And indeed... The Pasuk describes from Dan to Beersheba, which is usually in the, in the Tanakh, when they describe all of Eretz Yisrael, it's from the far north, remember Dan up here in my imaginary picture, all the way down to the south from the Negev and Beersheba. From Dan to Beersheba, they are scandalized. They are shocked. Um, they recognize immediately why is this happening. It's the growing Canaanite influence. They never got rid of these people. The Canaanites, as we said, were foul human beings. They behave like this, and it doesn't take long for Jews to be influenced by the people around them, and they fell into this kind of behavior. Um, if you, I'm sorry, Asher Lev, if, if, you, if you learn with me anything in the course of the year, I hope you learn a few things maybe, but one thing, take if this one thing, I'll be satisfied if you remember this, and that is the following. Rambam, Hilos Deos, Perik Vav, Halacha Aleph and Beis. In it, the Rambam says something that you can find elsewhere in Shas and in, in Chazal, but it, it, he basically sums it up. We are all social creatures. We are all influenced by our surroundings. Therefore, we are obligated, and probably the most important thing, decision you will make is, where am I going to situate myself? You must, says the Rambam, he passes this way in Hilchus Deus, he says, you have to live among tzaddikim. You have to live among Talmudic Chachamim. If you do, you'll become like them. You're writing it down as you should. Vav, halacha aleph and base. In Hilchos Deos. He says, conversely, if you cannot find Sadiqim, if you're living in times that hypothetically are just disastrous, everybody's a Russia, go off and live in a cave. Dig a pit. Get away from them. We're social creatures. You go into Eretz Yisrael, Hashem says, get rid of the Canaanites. They're wicked through and through. If you don't get rid of them, they're going to influence you, you're going to fall into their ways, and that's really what we're finding here. The nation realizes this immediately. 
They understand that there's an extreme response that's necessary. 400,000 soldiers are gathered to mitzvah, which is just outside of Giva, also walking distance from where we are. Today you can't go there, although maybe I'll be able to take you on a tour. You can stand in a Jewish settlement called Sagot, looking down into the ancient archaeological tell of what the Arabs called Ain Nusba, uh, and look at mitzvah. It's unfortunately inaccessible today because it's right there in the huge metropolis called Ramallah, which is pre presently the Palestinian capital. Um, and uh, so we can't really get there with any, any, uh, any ease today. They're in midst for 400,000 soldiers. No. Uh, Jews haven't been there, to my knowledge, unless they're nuts, uh, for, for decades. The last archaeological expedition there was, interestingly, a guy from Berkeley, my own college town, uh, Berkeley in the 1920s. To my knowledge, that's the last time that any, archaeolo any archaeologists really did any tours, any, any expeditions there. Um, the Jews are there from all tribes, 400,000 immediately. That's pretty good. You know, call, talk about a call to arms. How many so, on the army, you're saying, by comparison? <laughs> I really don't know. It's a good question. But, I mean, you want to assemble an army that does... See, that's no fair. You can't compare it because we have an army. Meaning, you know, it, we, and there are reservists in the army. So there's a system in place that all it takes is, you know, a, a matter of war and a few phone calls to get everybody going. Here, there's no organized army. And so immediately, 400,000 men organize themselves to stamp out this cancer in their midst. The, lady step, the Levite steps forward. He tells them his story. The army surrounds across the way the, 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 little, the little city of Giva, and they say, extradite the bad guys. They have to be punished now. We're going to eradicate the evil in its midst, right in our midst right now. And Binyamin, shockingly, the tribe of Binyamin takes this as a personal assault, and they refuse. They're not going to give over these bad guys in Giva. And instead of giving over the bad guys, they send 26,000 men in what's on record the first Jewish civil war. If Yeah, the first Jewish civil war. Yehuda leads the nation, as they always lead the nation. Hashem permits them to go out to battle. Round one, who wins? Binyamin wins. It's a trounce. 22,000 Jews are killed on the first day, the first battle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's serious stuff. He likes to give up. Jake, Jake. Yeah. Hard to tell, kind of like that. Um, the one in the black kippah, Rabbi Pitham? The... Were they, what's that? They fought with swords. They fought with swords and knives. Yeah. Now, uh, after the first defeat, uh, the 11 tribes, the other 11 tribes consult Hashem. Hashem, they ask, can we, can we fight them again? They want to fight. And Hashem says, yeah, you can fight again. He's not telling them to fight, but he gives them permission. Um, there's a, an emergency measure that's necessary. As we said, it's motivated by trying to get rid of the evil. The second round, Binyamin 2. Uh, Israel zero. Binyamin smites eighteen thousand. And they should best uh, if they were winning. Yeah, that's true. The Medrash in Tana de Beliau says, "What is what is what what is to blame for their defeats?" It's the introduction to this whole story. They they forgot that when you go to war, you have to go to war on your riding your spiritual. Um, level of that generation, there was, they had their own cancer in their midst that was a bad luck charm. They called it the pestle of Micha in the north. They forgot to think, hey, you know, if we go to, we go to battle, we better have Hashem on our side. He's not going to be on our side if, his, if Micha's pestle, if his statue is going <laughs> to persist there in the north. They never got rid of it, and that explains these first two defeats. Meaning, 
the way we're supposed to understand it is they were right, but they were defeated because they didn't go with a clean spiritual slate. What are you going to say? But plus, um, they just attacked. I mean, they, they wanted to attack more than they wanted to save Hashem's name. That's why they asked the that's another. That's another explanation for their initial defeats. Rabbi, yeah, please, go ahead. Is there archaeological evidence of um, wars leave very little in way of proof. Usually a lot of um, black soot that could, that's hard to sift through. There are some wars. There is, for example, if I take you to what's called the City of David, um, you can actually see lingering black soot that I think is, makes there's a compelling case to be made that that's a sign, that's a leftover from the first temple destruction. And you have here and there little indications that I don't think are hard fast proofs, proofs exactly, but there are strong indications that that these things happened here. I don't, I don't know if we have any, any indication. I mean, you know, wars are destructive, so not much is left in their wake. The, um, <clears throat> the third time around, Hashem promises Binyamin will be delivered into their hands, and the Jews are crafty. The tribes go up to Shiloh. They weep. They fast. They offer korbonos. They ask permission. Hashem says go. And now their strategy, they, they're very crafty. They're very tricky. They draw the members of the tribe of Binyamin out to the highway. They lure them out. They ambush them. They slaughter them. They then go to the cities that were left behind and they set fires to the cities of Binyamin, killing in total 25,000 men and all of the tribe's women. All of them. And the children. And their children. The only survivors from the entire tribe of Binyamin are six hundred men who take refuge by a rock in a place called Rimon. And suddenly we don't know. There are a lot of things there are a lot of things that we don't know. That's what Rimon means, true. Yeah. And the tribes go back and remember the motivation. It's pure. It's to get rid of the evil before it grows into something worse. They go back to mitzvah. They take a collective vow. We're not going to provide brides for this tribe that allowed this evil to happen. And then suddenly the feeling of regret overwhelms them. They realize if they don't provide wives for the, for the 600 surviving men, an entire tribe of the Jewish people is going to become extinct. Well, that's terrible. That's not going to do. So the last couple bad notes in this whole episode, there was one village that did not take part in this vow, which is not defensible. They should have been part of Kuala Yisrael. It's called Yavesh Gilad. They were absent. So the army, well, it's a logical thing under the circumstances. They go up and they smite all the men and all the, the women who are not virgins. They take 400 of the surviving young girls to be wives for, the, for, for some of the men. But that's only 400 girls, there's 600 men, so now what are you going to do with the, uh, for the other? This is very famous. The last 200 men in Binyamin need a shidduch. And so what do they do? On Tuba Av, on the 15th of the month of Av, one of the many things that happened that make it a positive day for it, go look in the Gemara and Tainis, talks about this. Um, there was a minak of the girls in Shiloh. They would go out and, and uh, dance in the vineyards. And the 200 remaining bachelors of Binyamin go out and fetch themselves a waf. Uh, they go out and they, they capture they capture 200 of those girls, um, and that's the story. And it's a uh, head scratcher, you, sh you know how the yeshiva style of scratching one's head? 
like this to your keeper, because otherwise you gotta wash your hand every time. Uh, right, so you, uh, it's a head scratcher and it requires much more depth than I'm giving it. Um, my job is, I'm a troublemaker. I wanna raise all the difficult questions. I'm not intending to answer everything. If you're intrigued by any of this, I've done my job and you're gonna go look it up and, and, and take it to the next level. I bring this as the one big black episode of, the, of, of Klal Yisrael during this period, but it really isn't entirely black. What they show is they have a kanaus. What is kanai? They're zealots for truth and for justice and for doing the right thing. And um, that in the long run, it, we can't tolerate that any kind of aberration. And one thing that happens, this kind of stuff, anybody else, have you studied the history of any other nations? And this is just like, this is just boilerplate, normal, normal behavior for most of the world in history. This is like relatively tame and, and G-rated this kind of stuff going on. Among the Jewish people, you'll never find these kinds of low-level events happening again. And you can say it's to the credit of this generation who fought imperfectly to get rid of the evil before it grew up into something worse. We'll have other bad things that happened to us, but nothing like this. I have just a few minutes, so I'm going to introduce um, somebody. I, I skipped somebody. How terrible of me. Yeah, I skipped the whole thing. That's so interesting. Okay, I'm glad we have just a few minutes left because I'm not going to introduce the person. I was, I, I'm going to tell you about the first judge. His name is Osniel Ben Knaz. I wouldn't have described him in those words exactly, but something along those lines. Osniel Ben Knaz. Knaz was the brother of Kalev. You remember Kalev? One of the good, one of the good spies. Kalev inherited the outskirts of Hebron. So Knaz is his brother, and his nephew is Osniel. He rules the Jews for the next 40 years. Whenever you see a number like that, that's a round number like 40, what does that say to you? Good stuff. Meaning, clearly some kind of divine, uh, divine providence that led to that 40 year, and it was mainly a good period. Here are his major um, virtues, his, 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 his uh, legacy. For sure, lots of darshan here. He wanted a, he's davening initially, one of his, one of the reasons why Hashem chose him as a judge is he was a Talmud Chacham and he wanted students. And Hashem was impressed with that. And his, his desire was Hashem Shemaim. He didn't want a lot of students so he could say, hey, look what a big share I had. He wanted them because he had so much Torah to give over, he wanted to impart them to his students. And Hashem loved that. He saw how sincere his davening was. He answered him. He gave him lots of students. And he made him the sofit, the, the judge of the Jews. Um, now, he had a, probably his most significant contribution to our history is as follows. The Jews through the desert had been learning Torah daily. They'd been steiging it up, if you know Yiddish. Moshe dies the day before we go into Eretz Yisrael, and the Jews go into an intense period of mourning for 30 days. And they forgot a lot of the Torah. In fact, we learn, Smarin Tzmora tells us, that they, um, they forgot 700 dinim, 700 laws. In the 30 days that they, been, that they neglected to learn, 700 statutes are forgotten. Um, think about us. You, know, you go for a period in your life without learning Torah. Uh, guys coming back to base, some of them did phenomenally well over summer, not all of them, and a couple of them say, I stopped learning for a month or two, it's so hard to pick up Gemara again. A little bit of time, you gotta, gotta, keep, it, gotta keep going. That's what Chazal tells us too. Um, right, we forget two days, let alone, let alone uh, 30 days. Um, now think about this. They lost that Torah. What do you do? Well, I'll go look it up in Wikipedia. Now, where do you get that Torah? Where do you get 700 dinim back? So Yeshua, you know what he davened? He said to Hashem, 
Could we have another um, divine revelation? You know, kind of like Har Sinai Part Two. Did that work? Is that okay for you, Hashem? Hashem said, "No, it doesn't work that way." I gave you the Torah. Keep the Torah. You embrace it. Good. Because hey, you don't. Sorry, can't help you. Uh, he says, "Loba Shemaimhi." It's not in heaven. Now that I've given it, where's lo, which part should we read? Loba Shemaimhi. Not in heaven. Well, it just happens to be this week's Parsha. Wherever you are in life, trust me, this will be a theme through our year. Whatever you're talking about, it's always in Parsha. Whatever Parsha it is. This is Parsha Nitzavim, Loba Shemaimi, it's not in heaven. Famous Pasuk, that's what Hashem responds to Yeshua. No, I gave you the Torah, now it's yours. Make of it what you will. Osniel steps into the breach. He steps forward, and based on his mastery of learning of Torah, he's capable of reconstructing those 700 lost halachos from what we call pilpul, fine-tuned learning. And uh, he's a great figure for that. Um, probably the second um, famous thing that he does, there was a bad guy named Kushan Risha Saim. He's so bad, he's Russia squared. Risha Saim. Kushan Risha Saim. Um, and the nation starts to fall under his influence. He's a Canaanite. And um, Osniel crushes him. And he creates peace. The peace lasts 40 years. That's when he's the Shofet. All the way till the next judge that we'll meet tomorrow named Eglon, who's the story that you, a couple of you remembered, a very, very colorful story we'll get to. Um, and uh, we're, now, we're now on our way. We're going to briefly go through some of the famous Shoftim and some really interesting things of this period. Tomorrow is, uh, yeah, very interesting. Dvorah, Gidon, and others. Okay, go ahead.